Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. A sweet solution to a heated conflict. They certainly were not expecting what they found. There were Tootsie Rolls there. The jailhouse journey of a music legend. Just as he's on the verge of a successful career, his dreams have been smashed. And the dreamer who launched the space race into orbit. He has the technology, he has the talent, and so the pressure is really on. Inside the walls of great institutions lie extraordinary relics, tales of intrigue and wonder, and secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Texarkana, a historic junction point for several major railroads for nearly 150 years, this town straddles the borders of both Texas and Arkansas, earning it the motto, twice as nice. And just over the Texas side of the line is a repository of the area's rich cultural heritage, the Texarkana Museum of Regional History. Its eclectic mix of artifacts includes pottery crafted by the local Caddo Indians, antique phonographs, and a set of stained glass windows salvaged from a local church. But amongst these regional relics lies one object whose influence reached far beyond Northeast Texas. This is a mahogany box, roughly about a foot tall, and it's festooned with levers and dials. And there are these wire leads, several sets of them leading off in different directions. According to writer John Rennie, this mysterious wooden crate held the promise of a medical miracle. This box literally represented the difference between life and death. What is this strange apparatus, and what astounding secret did it conceal? 1916, San Francisco. 
With the recent discovery that the electron is the heart of all matter, people in this center of innovation are seeing endless possibilities in the power of electricity. Suddenly, people were being exposed to ideas like radio waves. X-rays were a brand new idea. People were suddenly realizing that science was revealing a world full of, of mysterious, invisible things that were somehow relevant to their lives and their health. In this supercharged atmosphere, a respected neurologist named Albert Abrams unveils a revolutionary new medical device known as the oscilloclast. The invention is based on a groundbreaking theory that the human body resonates with powerful electronic emanations. Healthy people were in effect vibrating at a particular rate that could be measured. Now when disease settled into certain tissues, that introduced a different kind of vibration. Abrams states that the oscilloclast analyzes these vibrations and can diagnose nearly every ailment known to man. To prove his claims, Abrams performs free public demonstrations of his device. He selects a volunteer from the audience and hooks them up to the oscilloclast. And he might say, well, the, the reading says it is a 49, and 49 corresponds to tuberculosis. And the patient would say, good heavens, sir, I, I do have tuberculosis. Abrams then sets the oscilloclast dials to a frequency that he says will negate the effects of the disease and even cure it. He could then take those bad vibrations and turn them around and send them back into the patient's body and basically counteract them. After just a few minutes, the patient is assured that he is well on his way to being cured. For the ill, the promise of this miraculous device is a godsend. The idea of going to a doctor's office, it wouldn't have to be terrifying anymore. It didn't have to worry about surgery. They would just show up and get a very simple treatment while they were standing there in the office. Before long, doctors around the country are clamoring to buy the revolutionary machine for themselves. But Abrams refuses to sell the device outright. Instead, he rents oscilloclasts, just like this one on display at the Texarkana Regional Museum of History, for an upfront payment of $250 and a monthly $5 subscription fee. The rental contract comes with a very strict clause. One of the crucial terms of the lease agreement is that no one is ever allowed to open up the wooden cabinet and look inside. By 1923, over 3,500 practitioners across the country are using oscilloclasts and swear by its curative properties. Soon, its creator becomes fabulously wealthy. He's a millionaire. He's being hailed as, as one of the, the greatest medical figures of our age. But his fortunes are about to take an unexpected turn. In 1923, a man was suddenly found dead in his home. And that case suddenly created a huge problem for Abrams and the oscilloclast. The man had been diagnosed with stomach cancer. But after receiving oscilloclast treatments, a practitioner determined he was cured. The surprise death calls into question the efficacy of Abrams' invention. This was the opportunity a lot of people were looking for to say, what do we really know about the oscilloclast? How do we figure out whether it really works at all? In 1924, the magazine Scientific American publishes a report that unlocks its secrets once and for all. 
the editors pay to rent an acyclist. Disregarding the terms of the lease, they crack the box open. What they discover shocks even the cynical science reporters. It was a complete rat's nest of wires thrown together hastily. In some cases, not even connected to anything. It was a complete nonsensical device. It couldn't possibly work. But if the acyclist is nothing but a worthless piece of junk, why have so many patients sworn by its diagnostic and curative properties? It seems it only possesses the power of suggestion. In a lot of these cases, people were claiming to be cured of diseases that they never actually had. As a result of this stunning expose, the public and the courts have a lot of questions for Dr. Albert Abrams. Unfortunately, they were never going to be able to get any sorts of answers because in January 1924, Albert Abrams died of pneumonia. Sadly, his acyclist was not able to cure that. Today at the Texarkana Museum of Regional History, this wood and wire relic is a reminder of a far-reaching scam perpetrated by a man who came to be known as the Dean of Medical Quackery. Quantico, Virginia. This tiny town of just under 500 people is surrounded on three sides by the massive Marine Base Quantico a military installation that's home to over 12,000 active soldiers, personnel, and civilians. It's also home to an institution celebrating the proud history of this elite armed forces branch, the National Museum of the Marine Corps. On display is a Corsair jet fighter, a sniper's rifle from the Vietnam War, and a World War II era tank. But among these tools of military might is a set of objects that seems more like a comical gag. The artifacts are about two and a half inches long, in a wrapper that's red and white and brown, and what's inside is pretty delicious. According to public affairs officer Gwen Adams, these sugary treats played an integral role in one of the Marine Corps' most challenging engagements. This candy. Could tell a story of survival, really. So, how did these chewy chocolate confections save the lives of a courageous band of soldiers? November 1950, Korea. The conflict between the communist-backed North Koreans and the pro-Western South Koreans is in its fifth month. An international coalition has just successfully driven communist troops into the far upper reaches of the peninsula. At this point, everyone thinks that this could be the end of the war. But on November 28th, U.S. Marines are trapped near the ice-covered Chosin Reservoir after a surprise invasion by Chinese forces. There were 10,000 Marines in the region from a handful of companies surrounded by 100,000 Chinese forces. The Marines are ordered to retreat. But one commander convinces his superiors to allow him and his men to stay and defend their position. Captain William Barber. Captain Barber, he was the kind of man that didn't believe in leading from the rear. He led his Marines from the front. After weeks of heavy combat, he and his men in the Fox Company are exhausted and their vehicles badly damaged. There's been a lot of gunfire, so fuel lines have been shot. He knew that if he retreated. That they would not make it and would be destroyed. 
But that's not the only problem. They're running dangerously low on ammunition, especially 60-millimeter mortar rounds, which have been essential to keeping the enemy at bay. If they run out of these mortars, the Chinese could easily overtake their position. So Captain Barber radios for an airdrop, and the 60-millimeter rounds are at the top of his list. Captain Barber reassured them that he could hold the position if he could be reinforced with supplies. Two days later, when the Marines hear the low hum of a resupply plane in the distance, they are filled with hope. Imagine that the Marines were very excited when they saw the pallets dropping, the parachutes coming down. They were going to be resupplied. The men are overjoyed to see dozens of boxes dropping to the mountainside. But when they open them up, they cannot believe their eyes. They certainly were not expecting what they found inside the pallets. There were Tootsie Rolls there. Thousands of Tootsie Rolls. Barber realizes that the officer who took his resupply request was unaware of the unit's codename for the mortars, Tootsie Rolls. And because the chocolate candy is standard issue in military mess kits, the base had no problem rounding them up. The mistake would be funny if the consequences weren't so dire. The Marines had to have been thinking, we have no mortar rounds. All we've got are these Tootsie Rolls. We're never going to get out of this. What will become of Captain Barber and his stranded company of Marines? In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
It's December 1950 in the Korean War. A company of Marines led by Captain William Barber are holed up at the ice-covered Chosin Reservoir in North Korea in desperate need of ammunition and equipment. But due to a communications mix-up, they've been resupplied with thousands of Tootsie Roll candies. So how will Barber's men bounce back from this bittersweet mistake? The men of Fox Company know they won't be able to hold out much longer against the enemy onslaught. So Captain Barber decides to make the best of the situation. He orders the Tootsie Rolls be distributed to his hungry and freezing men. And that's when they make an amazing discovery. They found that once they got the Tootsie Rolls softened up, they could use them to patch holes in the fuel lines of the vehicles. And once they put it on there, it froze and they were good to go. The men managed to restore many vehicles to working order, enabling Fox Company to finally leave their vulnerable position. After the Tootsie Rolls, Barber's company had traveled 78 miles and continue on to their objective. After a fierce slog through the Chosin Reservoir, Fox Company reaches a safe zone along the Sea of Japan. While the fighting took its toll on his men, Barbara's decision to press on staved off what seemed to be certain defeat. Captain Barber had started with 220 men. 82 of his men were able to walk out of that battle. Two years later, in 1952, William Barber is awarded the Armed Forces' highest tribute for his bravery and leadership at the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir. For his valiant efforts, he received the Medal of Honor and is considered one of the greats in the Marine Corps. To this day, the Marines of Fox Company still recall the amazing escape and the unlikely role played by a certain sugary treat. And here, at the National Museum of the Marine Corps, these 1950s-era Tootsie Rolls serve as a humble reminder of the courageous efforts of one group of soldiers who stood their ground against bitter odds. Manhattan's Fifth Avenue was once home to tycoons Andrew Carnegie, Henry Frick, and Cornelius Vanderbilt. Today, it is known as Museum Mile, and features a brilliant cluster of some of the world's greatest cultural institutions. One of these treasures is the Museum of the City of New York. Its eclectic collection contains more than one million artifacts, including vintage jewelry from Tiffany & Company, costumes from classic Broadway shows, and a fragment of the airplane that crashed into the Empire State Building in 1945. But one rather diminutive object symbolizes an oversized chapter in the city's history. It's a small round pin. It says, I sell the New York Evening Journal one cent, and it has sort of a stars and stripes motif. According to assistant curator Lily Tuttle, this tiny token recalls a fervent and sensational struggle. It represents the fierce rivalry between two newspaper giants and the unraveling of a brutal crime. What is this badge? And how does it symbolize a bitter tug of war that transformed American journalism? June 1897. William Randolph Hearst, publisher of the New York Evening Journal, and his nemesis, Joseph Pulitzer, owner of the New York World, are engaged in a fierce battle for control of the city's newspaper market. The two papers are chomping at the bit, looking for some opportunity to beat each other out and break the news. 
One night, reporters from both papers are waiting in the city morgue in hopes of unearthing a story. Finding little of interest, they are about to move on when a morgue worker brings in a strange object. It's a large package wrapped in gaudy red and gold fabric that has just been pulled from the East River by a young boy. It's unwrapped, and immediately the reporters freeze in their tracks. The parcel contains a headless torso. The reporters were both horrified by this gruesome discovery, but also extremely excited. It's just the kind of story their bosses, Hearst and Pulitzer, are looking for. The next day, the New York World runs the headline, Boys Ghastly Find. Both papers' stories fly off the newsstands. To encourage sales, Hearst has the Evening Journal newsboys wear pins just like the one on display at the Museum of the City of New York. But soon, Hearst and Pulitzer realize the best way to win this tabloid war is to solve this gruesome crime. So they dispatch reporters across the city in search of clues. Hearst doesn't place any limits on his journalists. Find clues, follow leads, make a citizen's arrest if necessary. But it is actually Pulitzer's New York world that catches the first big break. And it falls to a 19-year-old cub reporter. Ned Brown is sitting alone in the newsroom on a Sunday night when a call comes in that a second body part wrapped in a similar red oil cloth has been located. When Brown arrives at the morgue, it's clear that the new discovery belongs to the same victim. Then he notices a patch of skin missing from the body's muscular chest, indicating that perhaps a tattoo has been removed. And when he examines the man's hands, he discovers they are unusually smooth. Now, the idea that the man had a tattoo indicated that this would be a working man. But the manicured hands sort of contradicted that. What working man would have such smooth hands? That's when Brown comes up with an intriguing theory. This could be a man who worked as a masseuse. Brown heads straight to the Turkish bathhouses and discovers that one masseuse a man named William Goldensup has been missing for days. He also learns that Goldensup sported a tattoo of his girlfriend across his chest. Brown is convinced he's identified the victim. Ned races back to the offices of the New York World to break the news. The next morning, copies of the New York World fly off the newsstands, giving Pulitzer an unassailable lead in the Battle of the Tabloids. But his rival, William Randolph Hearst, isn't about to concede defeat. With Pulitzer's New York World landing the first big scoop, Hearst orders the staff of the New York Journal to get the ultimate story. Hearst sends out a team of journalists with a copy of the red oil cloth that the body parts were found wrapped in, trying to locate who purchased the cloth. That night, when a reporter walks into a dry goods store in Queens, he gets the lead he's been looking for. The shop owner immediately recognizes the cloth and says, yes, absolutely, someone has come in and purchased the large quantity of this cloth. The customer was a woman named Augusta Knack, who lives in an apartment on 9th Avenue. The excited reporter races over to the building to question the neighbors. The journalist discovered that Mrs. Knack had not one, but two boyfriends, Martin Thorne and William Goldensup. The neighbors described it as a sordid love triangle. 
When the cops search Nack's apartment, they find conclusive proof that she was indeed the killer. They locate a secret compartment that contains a butcher knife, a saw, and a revolver that's splattered with blood. That evening, the journal dashes off a triumphant headline. Murder mystery solved by the journal, Mrs. Knack murderous. Augusta Knack and her boyfriend, Martin Thorne, are arrested and admit to killing William Goldensup. Augusta Knack is sentenced to 15 years in prison, and Martin Thorne is sentenced to death. The legacy of the crime is lasting. The dogged journalistic techniques it inspired usher in a new era in sensational reporting. And this promotional button in the archives of the Museum of the City of New York stands as a timeless relic from a conflict between two titans of American journalism. Cleveland, Ohio. In 1952, this city played host to a live music show that is believed to be the first rock and roll concert in history. So it's only fitting that Cleveland's now home to an institution that honors this art form, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This distinctive building enshrines the possessions of music's greatest legends, including Elvis Presley's custom motorcycle and outlandish stage costumes worn by Jimi Hendrix and David Bowie. But alongside these over-the-top showpieces hangs a far simpler tool of the trade. This artifact is made of wood. It has 12 strings on it, rather large sound hole in it, and a large body. According to curator Jason Hanley, the man who played this instrument was driven by a rare passion that both fueled his legendary career and nearly derailed it. This instrument really has a great story behind it. It's one of murder, music, and the entire history of rock and roll. So who wielded this guitar? And how did his music set him free? 1910, Dallas, Texas. 22-year-old Hudy Ledbetter is a promising musician whose vast talent is matched only by his ambition. The sharecropper's son is determined to carve out a career for himself as a traveling performer. He would play at county fairs, he would play in juke joints, in nightclubs, anywhere he can. Hudy has emerged from his eight years of performing as a charismatic showman and a master of his 12-string guitar. He was always finding new ways of how to pick those 12 strings or tune them differently and create something that was uniquely his own. The instrument's full, resounding tone proves the ideal backdrop for his soulful tenor voice. Together, they create a uniquely magnetic act. The way he sang and tapped his foot as he played, it really drew audiences in. People were sort of mesmerized by the music, and it felt very authentic to people. But offstage, Hudy's intensity grows mercurial. Often his temper would get the better of him, and this frequently caused him to get in trouble. Just before Christmas 1917, Hudie is walking to a party with his cousin when they begin arguing over the affections of a woman. The fight escalates and takes a violent turn. Nobody really knows quite exactly what happened, but at the end of it, his cousin lies shot dead by Ledbetter. The musician is soon arrested and charged with murder. Four months later, Hudy is found guilty and begins a 30-year prison sentence. Ledbetter is horrified. 
just as he's on the verge of a successful career in music, his dreams about his future have been smashed. Life on the chain gang is exhausting. Yet Hudie's brawny build and dogged work ethic earn him a new name, Lead Belly. It's sort of a play on his last name, Lead Better, but it's also that he's known for being a big, strong guy, a Lead Belly, that he can kind of take a lot of punishment. To help pass the time, Lead Belly and his fellow inmates sing chants and work tunes taught to them by lifers. The music in prison is sort of stuck in a time warp. People are singing the same song for many years that they brought in when they were originally incarcerated. For Hudie, these old, unfamiliar songs serve as inspiration. He begins crafting new verses for the tunes and performs them for his prison mates. And he's getting quite popular. Even the prison staff comes to love these impromptu concerts. They allow Hudie use of a guitar and even permit him to travel to perform at other prisons. Before long, the buzz around Lead Belly's music reaches the ears of the most powerful man in the state, Texas Governor Pat Neff. And the leader finds his curiosity piqued. Pat Neff was known politically as a really strict governor who was very hard on criminals, but then suddenly he's going to visit the prison to hear Lead Belly perform. When he learns of his VIP audience, Lead Belly is exhilarated. He soon begins to wonder if he can conjure up a performance that convinces the governor to set him free. One day in January, Neff and his wife settle in for a private concert. After playing some hymns and old folk songs, Lead Belly directly addresses the governor. Lead Belly asks if he can perform a special song, a song he's written, not a traditional song he's heard. Governor Neff graciously agrees. As he sings, Lead Belly's lyrics impart a thinly veiled message. The song is actually asking to be let go. Having delivered his covert communique, the musician holds his breath. And he looks out at Lead Belly and says, One of these days, I'm going to let you go. In 1925, Neff makes good on his word, granting Lead Belly a full pardon. And as soon as he's released, Ledbetter discovers that his time on the inside has only enhanced his repertoire. He goes on to compose over 500 songs, many of which are played on this 12-string Stella guitar, now on display at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He becomes a sensation of music. Ledbelly dies in 1949 at the age of 60. But his incomparable body of work goes on to influence generations of musicians, from Woody Guthrie and Bob Dylan to Led Zeppelin and Nirvana. Today, Lead Belly's legend lives on at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where this 12-string guitar celebrates the legacy of a man who knew firsthand the redemptive power of music. Huntsville, Alabama. The original home of NASA, this area's rich association with space exploration has earned it the nickname, the Rocket City. And there is one institution that faithfully safeguards this stellar history, the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. We have everything from a canvas-winged monoplane, Saturn V moon rocket, and even an Apollo 16 space capsule. But amongst these out-of-this-world artifacts is one that's earthbound. It's old, it's very well-worn, it's got a cracked leather seat. 
It even has a small generator on it. Curator Ed Stewart knows this item's journey well. The path that this bike took changed how we perceive the universe. So what role did this bicycle play in launching humans into outer space? Germany, 1945. World War II is winding down, and Germans are scattering to the winds to avoid capture. American and Soviet officials are on the hunt for Germany's top military and scientific minds. There's total chaos among the ranks of the Nazi military. Any organizational structure has just been abandoned for the kind of save-yourself mentality. One highly sought-after individual hiding out in the countryside is a German scientist named Werner von Braun. Von Braun was an extremely intelligent person. He was a gifted engineer. In fact, he is the creator of Germany's revolutionary guided missile, the V-2. But his interests have always been elsewhere. From a very young age, von Braun really showed an interest uh, in space. He wanted to work in engineering and astronomy and make space exploration a reality. But when the Nazis aggressively recruited the young engineer to develop weapon systems, he had little choice in the matter. So, at war's end, von Braun suspects that the best bet for pursuing his dreams is with the U.S. Von Braun moved around different parts of Germany trying to desperately avoid the Soviets because he didn't want to get captured by them and actually seek out and surrender to American forces. So, in 1945, while hiding near the Austrian border, Von Braun sends his brother to an American checkpoint, using the bicycle now exhibited at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. So he says, I have who you're looking for. My brother's Werner von Braun. He developed the V-2 rocket. We're over here. We want to surrender to you. The Americans are thrilled to have access to von Braun's engineering expertise. So it's agreed that he will be brought to America under a work program dubbed Operation Paperclip. But von Braun is in for a rude awakening. Once settled, the U.S. government tasks him not with reaching space, but with ramping up their deadly missile systems. He is disappointed that he's still working on weapons and isn't able to really focus on space exploration. In his spare time, however, he uses the technology and resources at his fingertips to keep pushing towards his dream. One of the smaller projects that von Braun had been working on during this time period is something called Project Orbiter. It's a missile design that he hopes will carry the first satellite into space. But he shelves the concept until July 29, 1955, when the government makes a groundbreaking declaration. President Eisenhower announces that we're going to launch a satellite into orbit. Von Braun feels that his chance to shine has finally arrived. Von Braun sees this as his opportunity to really show this technology that he's developed. He submits his design to a special committee for the Secretary of Defense. But to his great disappointment, he is passed over for a project called Vanguard. When he finds out he is just devastated, he's crushed. Werner von Braun is still sidelined from the action when, in October, the Soviets stun the world. They launch the first satellite, Sputnik. The U.S. responds by rushing to launch their own. With the eyes of the world watching, on December 6th, all systems are go. Vanguard is on the launch pad, and it takes off just barely. There's a 
really, really horrible explosion and collapses back down on the launch pad in a huge ball of flames. It's an enormous technological embarrassment for the Eisenhower administration. Looking to quickly bounce back, they finally set their sights on Von Braun. Von Braun has this project in his back pocket. It's ready to go. And he steps forward with this as an opportunity for us to really save face. After a lifetime of dreaming, Von Braun is at long last given the green light to launch his own satellite. It's a mission they call Explorer One. He has the technology, he has the talent, and so the pressure is really on. In January 1958, only a month after the Vanguard disaster, all eyes are on Explorer 1. The team watches in suspense as the rocket disappears into the stratosphere and its satellite successfully reaches orbit. The U.S. has taken the first small step towards space exploration. Von Braun has done it. With a successful launch of Explorer 1, finally his dreams that he's had since being very, very young come true. In fact, the government is so impressed by Von Braun that in October he is asked to head up the Marshall Space Flight Center for a new agency called the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA. And a decade later, in July 1969, a rocket designed by Von Braun safely launches Apollo 11 and its astronauts to the moon. Today, this rickety bicycle remains at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center as an unlikely symbol of the beginning of America's foray into the space race and the persistence of a man who helped bring it to fruition. San Francisco, California. The city by the bay has a proud legacy of attracting fortune seekers and entrepreneurs from speculators during the gold rush to the modern-day tech wizards in Silicon Valley. And one institution within the city's main public library chronicles this rich heritage. The San Francisco History Center. Items on display include a plaster bust of California's iconic gay activist, Harvey Milk, a ship wheel from the USS Carl C. aircraft carrier, and thousands of books, newspapers, and documents relating to prominent San Franciscans. But amongst these records are two cookbooks written by a former San Francisco pioneer whom history has largely forgotten. One is brown, very old, about three by five. One is small, dark blue. Inside are scrawled ingredients of various kinds. According to historian Sushil Bibbs, the recipes in these cookbooks propelled their author on a meteoric rise to fame that was dramatically cut short. Who penned these recipes? And what surprising turn of events led to her downfall? April 1852, San Francisco. Since California became a free state two years earlier, the city has become a focal point for African Americans fleeing slavery in the South. They wanted to become entrepreneurs. Others came just for a chance to work. But San Francisco isn't the refuge many hoped it would be. There are few jobs. And if African Americans don't possess papers that prove their status, their lives can be turned upside down. The California Fugitive Slave Law meant that they could be taken off the street and wrested into slavery whether they were slaves or not. 
One person determined to overcome these odds is a striking African-American woman named Mary Pleasant. Mary Ellen Pleasant was born a slave in Georgia. After being freed by her master, Mary is now determined to fight for the rights of all African-Americans. However, there is one problem. She has no freedom papers. So Mary takes advantage of one distinctive trait. Mary Pleasant's father was a young, white governor's son from Virginia. So Mary was biracial. She could pass for white. By posing as a white woman and adopting the name Ellen Smith, Mary is able to find work cooking at a local boarding house. Using signature recipes, including those now on display at the San Francisco History Center, Mary quickly gains a reputation as the best cook in town. She was a great chef, and pretty soon her recipes became known. Mary is so popular that soon an array of influential robber barons and politicians are vying for her attentions. Unaware that she's a former black slave, they even start offering her financial advice. Pleasant listened to the young men as she served them, and she learned about investments that she invested her money, and it grew. Before long, Mary Pleasant has made enough cash to branch out on her own. She invested in almost everything, tenant farms and dairy farms and a livery stable, and even later, she had boarding houses. By the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861, Mary's vast wealth has made her one of the most influential women in San Francisco, and she uses that influence to help some of her fellow African Americans. It is said that she employed all of them who were out of work in her laundries and the like. She also brought young men in, gave them homes so that they could send for their wives. In a nod to Mary's charitable spirit, within the African-American community, she becomes known as Black City Hall. However, Mary's carefully constructed double life is about to come crashing down. On January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln announces the Emancipation Proclamation, which frees slaves in Confederate-controlled states. The action removes any risk that Mary might be thrown back into slavery in the South. It meant that Mary could be who she was. She didn't have to have a double life anymore. She could be Mrs. Pleasant. So, in a fateful move, she finally reveals her true identity. As a symbolic gesture, where she had always placed her name in the city directory in San Francisco, Ellen Smith White, this time she puts her name as Mary Ellen Pleasant, colored. With her newfound celebrity, Mary continues her pioneering work and wins a series of court battles to establish the rights of African Americans. With the Emancipation Proclamation, Mary Pleasant could step out as Mary Pleasant, not as a champion of African Americans, but as a leader of African Americans for civil rights. This was a period in which she was able to excel, and she became respected. But in later years, her influence waned, and some of her detractors took to discrediting her and her achievements. Sadly, by the time Mary dies in 1904, her name has been tarnished. Pleasant was not known anymore, and her great accomplishments by and large were forgotten. 
But over time, that changes. While unappreciated at the end of her life, Mary Pleasant's reputation is eventually rehabilitated by historians, and she is today celebrated for her contributions to the civil rights movement. We can say that Mary Pleasant's actions set a model of overcoming hatred and bitterness with love. Today, these modest recipe books on display at the San Francisco History Center serve as a reminder of an audacious woman who had just the right ingredients to defy racial boundaries. From a medical fraud to a musical jailbird, a sweet solution to a tabloid war. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.